0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Fair Kitchens. Learn about the Fair Kitchens code and join the movement at fairkitchens.com.
2: Welcome to Processing, a show about the intersection between food and grief, with your hosts, Sara Tangora and Bobby Conforto. On this show, we're going to really explore where grief and food intersect, how they go hand in hand, different people's experiences with their specific traumas and how food played a part from the beginning to the end of that experience. And how, as individuals, we uniquely process life's traumas and losses through either the longing for, the creating of, the avoiding of, the obsessing over, and the eating of food. I remember right after Michael died, I still miss him, but I missed him so badly that night that I stopped at the convenience store on the corner and I bought a container of Ben and Jerry's Cherry Garcia. It's too sweet, you know, it's too everything. And I went home with it and I took it to bed and I thought to myself, gee, so this is my first menage a trois after Michael's death. Me, Ben, and Jerry. And I ate the entire thing. What do you think your relationship to food was during times of crisis? I think that um, my sister and I use food to reward ourselves.
3: I wish I had something more no? interesting to say, but definitely like spaghetti and
2: meatballs and chocolate cake. <laughs> <laughs> my mom still can't eat rugula; It makes her too sad. I've also experienced a lot of loss, as has Bobby. And I think we really wanted to find a way where we could like work together. There's something that feels very compelling about doing a project with you, Mom, um, as just kind of a missing piece in life and just something we've always wanted to do but not known quite how. I can't think of anything better myself. I think that, I mean, any conversation about grief, I think, prepares everyone for grief because there are so few conversations about grief. It's why I think yes. that what you guys are doing is so important. <laughs>
4: Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live on the Heritage Radio Network from, you know, whenever to whenever, from a birth pizza in Michigan,
0: Brooklyn!
4: Joined as usual with the lopez How you doing? Good. You're good? Mm-hmm. Yeah? You're still dressed in your parka. It's cold. I feel that you have a special past to wear your Christmas hat. I feel you should have your Christmas hat on. No. Like, maybe it's just, like, a tree hat with no. decorations. Like, maybe it's, nope. like, timeless for nope. you. Nope. No? No. All right. Uh, Matt, in the booth, as usual. How you doing, Matt?
1: I'm doing good, but I've had, I had the door open to yeah. the studio while you did that.
4: It's just downright frightening. Yeah? yeah.
1: Yeah. I've never I've never had the door open before.
4: Yeah. Well. Uh, so it, <laughs> you're like not enjoyable. I get, I get it. I get it from all sides too, because it's coming out of the speakers. It's coming out that way. I
1: can't. Man, not wow. doing that again.
4: Wow. Sorry for you. Sorry for you. Uh, so I once had to do it on the street for somebody. Here's the worst. Like I've uh, I don't do it anymore because. Stas and I decided that, in general, we don't like to do it. But I've done it in a hotel room when I'm by myself.
5: Why?
4: Because I had to call in. You know all the times I used to have to call in, like, (laughs) when I was in Germany? I did it once uh, on a street corner in some other country. I forget where I was. And it's just, like, it just feels really weird not doing it in the context of the booth. You know what I mean? Like, in a hotel, like, two rooms down, someone's like... Can't you just have sex like a normal person in the room (laughs) and bother me? That's how you do it. (laughs) That's not right. Imagine. That's horrifying. That's horrifying. Uh, So, anything uh, good happen in your world of food and drink this past week? Food and drink? No. No. Well, didn't you bring me some nice food and drink from like they? I
2: gave you Meyer lemons and grapefruits from my parents' backyard.
4: Nice. And uh, what kind of grapefruit are they? I don't know. Uh, What color are they? White. How long ago were they on the tree? Five days ago? Five days? Nice. Did you keep them in your fridge? Nope. Mm. All right. Uh, like, Nastasia grew up with a Meyer lemon tree, so she has a special love for them. I have never developed this love, so she is bringing me her childhood Meyer lemons in the hopes that I can develop a similar love. Now, I hope you guys know that for her to actually like something from her childhood is like, like a crazy thing. I'm like, Nastasia, why do you hate lemongrass? She's like, because I grew up with it. Because I grew up with it, so I don't like it anymore. And, like, all the stuff from your childhood you don't like, except for Meyer lemons. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
4: How's it come? How come that's the one? I don't the know. Lemon?
2: They're good. They're not as waxy as what you're used to, I don't think. I Are you, I think you, you uh, don't like the waxiness? Is that what... <laughs> the
4: waxiness? I mean, of the peel? Yeah. I mean, they smell good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Fragrant. Um... Oh, and this is from, um, we're now exchanging gifts, this is from uh, our friend Bitterest Girl, who gives me the MREs and comes to the Heritage Radio Network events, It's glassware for you. Oh. She thought you These would like. These are
2: the things that
4: you're no. 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 So she's unwrapping it now. Mm-hmm. That's what's happening. This is what's happening. She's unwrapping. It's is not like mouth a tree.
2: Like a tree trunk.
4: Well, if a tree are was they all an, the same? If a tree was an octagon, I don't know.
2: They're yours. I didn't open it.
4: Uh-huh. I did not open it. Anyway. Cool. Uh, thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you said nothing good in food and drink happened to you. No. At all.
2: Nope.
4: See, what did I do? I had to do so. I, uh, parties, but not. Food and drink. The parties had no good food and drink. No. Did you throw any parties? No. You're just going to other people's parties. Yes. All right. I had to throw the uh, Booker's yearly sushi party. Uh, so my son, Booker, who, you know, is a lover of only candy and sushi and cured New Zealand King Salmon, which, by the way, turns out our guest from New Zealand King Salmon, uh, I've seen him at the bar a couple of times, Michael, he, uh, he used to be working with our Classics in the Field from two weeks ago, uh, Paul Bertoli at Framani, his sausage things. So he knows, so it's like all of the cooking issue stuff is coming together. Isn't that weird? Cool. Anyways. So, Booker, of course, had to eat his half kilo of Ikura, but then every year, I do the, like, you know, they all want to make, you know, sushi rolls, like American-style sushi rolls, like Californian and salmon and all stuff. So, I have to make all, all the stuff, and so every year, I have to, you know, Morimoto-style, like, rotary-cut uh, veg, and then into sheets, and then Pack those sheets into sticks so that they can be placed inside of the sushi roll. You know, you know how you do. Mm -hmm. So, I typically I'll do you know cucumber, carrot, daikon, uh, and pickled daikon. I think that's and and scallions, and that's it. Anyway, for veg, Uh, avocado. But I don't do the same thing. You can't rotary cut an avocado. What? What are you weirdo? Rotary cutting? Do you know what the uh, old English D bag name for avocado is? You familiar with this, Matt? No. And it does not make sense until you've tasted other kinds of avocados. Okay, wrap your mind around this. Alligator pear. Mm. Oh. Alligator Hmm. pear. Mm -hmm. Now, for those of us that grew up having the image of the avocado in your mind be the Haas avocado, right? Uh, Or like, you know weirdos in grocery stores call it Mexican avocados, right, the Haas, because in Mexico they have so many more varieties of avocado than Haas, right, Mm -hmm. but anyway, the Haas avocado is kind of that bumpy one that is delicious and soft and high in oil, right, so you can get the alligator part out of that, because it's all, looks like an alligator, and that makes sense, and I I guess it's kind of pear-shaped, too, maybe that's why they call it an alligator pear. But the texture is nothing like a pear, but if you have some of the other non-oily varieties of uh, avocado, like Colombian avocados, then I could see more closely how they're like, oh, I get it. It's kind of like maybe, because it's not just like a vehicle for like oil and creaminess and unctuousness. It's like something that you might eat, not like bite it like a pear, but it makes more sense, mm. other than just the shape and the skin alligator pear. You know what they call Asian pears mm. in stupid old... something uh, apple? No, no, no. Uh, sand pears. Mm. which is not a nice thing to call it. And they're not pears, neither are they apples. But I like uh, do you like Asian pears? No. Really, why? I don't know. What is it about? All
2: of it, texture, flavor. You don't
4: like the texture? Mm-mm. Huh? Huh. What about you, Matt? Uh I feel like no. I haven't had one
1: in a long time. I should try I should try it again.
4: Yeah, you should. There are many many varieties of Asian pear, right? But uh but I think maybe Nastasias and tell me if this is your gripe on them, they're mainly about the kind of crunch and the water explosion texture mm-hmm. with like kind of a mild florally and sweet taste, but they're not kind of rich or complicated that way
2: I've, in they're general. They're in the same category as water chestnuts, which I don't like.
4: Oh, my God. My, yeah, I told you my wife hates mm-hmm. water chestnuts. Jen hates water chestnuts. And she also, by the way, sorry, hates me talking about it. Because she, she's like, why you got to bring up like the, the one thing I don't like? You know what I'm saying? She's like, you're a jerk. You make me look like a bad guy. This is the one thing I don't like. But it's like, you know, I feel that there's like a, a, a community of people out there who hate water chestnuts all out of proportion. And for me, I don't understand the hatred. Now, remember people, I don't like melon other than watermelon. So we all have our issues in life, cooking issues specifically. But uh, water chestnuts, to me, it's just like some sort of like, it's like crunchy water. Like, what is it? Is it that, is it that, that weird, it's not fibrous, but that weird, like, mealy crunchy that you don't like?
2: Yeah, I guess so.
4: Where are you on water chestnuts, Matt?
1: Uh, I have not had a water chestnut. Right.
4: Whoa, 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 What? What year were you born?
1: Uh, 86.
4: Yeah, man. Maybe it's like a generational thing. What year were you born? And 82. Stuff? So, like, wait, somewhere what? between 82 and 86. They disappeared?
2: We had a lot of Chinese food
4: growing up. Yeah, but I feel like even, like, you saying Matt hasn't had Chinese oh, food? Oh, Wait. Okay.
1: Yeah. Hold on. Well. Okay. I gotta look at the internet for a second. The the water chestnuts—the ones that. uh, What is the thing that sort of has like a bunch of circles? Almost looks like you're eating the plastic that uh, a soda uh, six pack would come.
4: Are you thinking of bamboo shoots? Are you thinking of of lotus root? Probably lotus root. It's got holes in it. It's like a big disc with holes in it.
1: You know, cream colored. That's lotus root. That's lotus
4: root. Okay. Yep. Still no on the water chestnuts. I think. You know. you, You see. I think. I feel like in the '70s. Like, every pseudo-Chinese restaurant, uh, sorry, every pseudo-Chinese recipe that, like, Whitey McWhitington would make at home baby had water chestnuts.
2: What? And baby corn.
4: Oh, I, I do not like baby corn. I, I'm going to go on record as saying baby corn is not good. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. What about baby corn, Matt? I
1: don't, I mean, I'll eat it if really? someone puts it in a thing, but it's not, I
4: would not by choice purchase it. Do you know what's delicious? Corn. Corn is amazing. Oh, my God, corn tastes good. Oh, my God, is corn good. You you also have to do almost nothing to make it taste so good. Oh, corn tastes so good. Also, like, like, sweet corn tastes good. Corn meal is great. Like, almost every aspect of the corn.
1: So baby corn actually is sort of genius because it's much worse than corn but also much smaller, so you don't have as much of the bad food.
4: Yeah, but you took that corn... Well, okay, so they do grow smaller varieties, but really it's immature corn and you're eating the cob. When was the last time you were eating corn and you were like, damn, I wish I could eat that cob. Does that happen to you? No. <laughs> Never. No. So then they like cook it and like can it. It's not even usually interestingly pickled. It's in that kind of like water, in that baby corn water. You know what I'm talking about, Anastasia? Yeah. And it's just like, that was a 70s thing. I feel like people have tried to bring it back a bunch, but I'm like, Why? Why? Like, why? Like, I don't understand it. Something that I'm tri- I've tried to love many times mm. is canned hearts of palm, too. Now, mm. hearts of palm I like, kind of. I've had good hearts of palm, but, like, I've tried to make myself love hearts of palm. And I'm always like, what's to, what's to love so much? What about you, Nastasia?
2: don't like it. You yeah. also don't like giant beats. Red beets.
4: I like red beets. Mm. I just don't like, this is a long discussion. I told you the best beets I've ever had were those dehydrate roasted beets. Anyway, here's the the flip for you. So, like, of vegetables that come in just kind of, like, flavorless, like, water, right? You got your baby corn, right? And then uh, you got your canned artichoke hearts. Now, canned artichoke hearts are a pale comparison to an actually well-done, nice, Like, you know, artichoke heart, whether Mm -hmm. you like raise it, whether you, you know, fry it, I usually fry them, not deep fry, but, you know, like pan fry to get a crisp on the one side. Uh, But like that's a huge difference between the canned stuff. But I haven't yet had that huge difference where like I'm like I now understand hearts of palm. Because I've grown up on the water variety. Because when you look at a canned artichoke heart, you're like, meh. You, you, you usually buy, if you're going to buy pre-made, you buy oil pack, right? Yeah. Yeah. But you've had the, the canned water mm-hmm. ones, right? And you're like, meh, mm-hmm. right?
2: Mm-hmm. Meh. Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah. And uh, don't you feel that hearts of palm might be that way? That there might be some sort of genius inside of a heart of palm the way there is inside of artichoke? Or the way artichoke is? But there isn't. Why? You've experimented?
2: No, I just don't like hearts of palm. I don't.
4: Well, have you ever had anything other than the canned? No, okay. Uh, and
2: you like it, not canned?
4: I'm trying to say I've never had the experience. I don't feel like where I know enough. do you enough. get it? I don't know. I don't know. I don't have enough experience with where hearts. Where does of, it grow? Anywhere where they grow, like what the, is it? It's the center. Like if you strip off the top of the palm, it's the growing shoot in the middle of the palm, palm
0: tree.
4: Yes, yeah, so usually small palms. But the the thing is, is that they there's a couple of different varieties of uh, of thing of palm-like or of KCE thing that they harvest the hearts of palm and some uh, when you harvest it like they're dead that's it you knock off the thing and then the palm tree is dead 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 muerto finished over and then some you can reharvest a couple of times but you're basically just harvesting that so the
2: worst meal would be baby corn water chestnuts cantaloupe ambrosia salad I like ambrosia and giant red beets you don't like ambrosia? Mm.
4: mm. Mm. Okay. Uh, we have a caller caller uh, i didn't even finish the thing but we'll get oh, to it later my, ask me best. about sushi ask me about sushi party uh caller you're on the air uh hey dave this is josh uh calling from
5: sarasota florida hey uh, i'm just looking good how are you all
4: right
5: uh looking for some uh, some advice on doing like a uh, long cook like a low temp cook on a chuck roast okay like 24 to 48 hours right um I did. I did a twenty-four hour cook on one like a couple of weeks ago. It came out pretty good. The temp, the texture was it was a little chewy still. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm, I'm planning on doing a forty-eight hour one this coming weekend for some friends. But I didn't know if you had any input before I <laughs> put myself out there with with friends. You know what I'm saying? What
4: temperature did you use?
5: Uh, I did sixty Celsius because I was doing it for my in-laws who don't like things to be too rare. I was right. going to go
4: a little bit lower, like. 58,
5: 59, yeah. but sometimes my friends kind of get a little squeamish if things are too too rare, you know?
4: Right, I mean, the, the, okay, so like, part of the problem with, like, a, a Chuck, tell me whether you had this happen. So at 24 hours, mm-hmm. at 60, I'm trying to think of, uh, i trying to think of, because uh, I've never done that exact temperature. Um, I mean, it should have started to get, we should have broken down quite a bit of the collagen by 24 hours at 60 like yeah it was
5: definitely it was definitely pretty good but it was like a little chewier than what i was looking for well, so i yeah. don't know if
4: you know by the way before i go into this are you on the tampa side of sarasota or the venice side of sarasota
5: um well, i actually live in bradenton but but, but oh, i'm right. i'm more the yeah the tampa side
4: yeah, all right, yeah. uh so do they still find shark's teeth on the beaches down in Venice and Nokomis or no? As far as I know. I haven't been down that way
5: in a long time. Yeah. But uh, but as far as I know.
4: Yeah. Used to be a shelf off the coast there. And then whenever storms would come up, like in that shelf, like is where all the prehistoric sharks were dead. And the storms would come up and just wash all these prehistoric shark's, shark's teeth up on the beach. And so you'd wait mm-hmm. for the waves to crash in. And then like before they rolled back out again, you'd, you'd yank them. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. I was
5: down there about 15 years ago when we did that, and, and you know, they were still washing in, but I, I don't know recently if they, I'm assuming it still happens. Yeah,
4: who knows? Uh, okay, so the, uh, I mean, that's a fun thing for a kid. If you take a kid down, mm-hmm. kids like collecting shark's teeth. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, those yeah. little weird sand fleas you have down there, not a giant fan of, but the shark's teeth, are very <laughs> pro, very pro. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, do uh, you think you could cook a sand flea? Could you capture a nut or whatever they are? You know one of those little things that jump around? Can you mm-hmm. eat them? Did you know in Belgium? Know. Do you know in Belgium, they have like these seashore shrimp where you used to have horses. And the horses would drag these like nets in the sand and pick up like zillions of these little gray shrimp. And then they would cook them and then sell them all over Belgium. Isn't that a weird, Isn't that a weird thing? Weird thing. I'm going to go experience that. I'm going to Belgium for the first time in February. So for any of you with ideas of Belgium, let me know. Anyway, back to your problem. One of the issues with low-temperature cooking in general versus high-temperature cooking and what I like to call multi-muscle meats. So when you're dealing with Chuck, you're dealing with something where there's a lot of different muscles, right? Mm -hmm. And... In any sort of like mass group of muscles, more certain muscles have more connective tissue, and certain muscles have less connective tissue. So let me know if I'm on base here. Even with something like pork belly, right? It's not one continuous mm-hmm. muscle. There'll be different uh, pieces of muscle that that are go in and out. So what'll end up happening in general is that one section of the uh, meat will be kind of del- you know delicious, you know good texture, and another one will be strangely dry, doesn't respond well, turns mushy and could be construed as chewy slash mushy at the same temperature just because the two muscles are very different, right? And so Mm -hmm. in situations like that, right, especially if people are used to kind of more traditional cooking methods where let's say the gelatin renders out of every – like all the collagen turns to gelatin because in low-temperature cooking, the collagen – does get converted into gelatin, but because the temperatures aren't so high, it doesn't really render out. It stays almost like a single piece of meat where the gelatin is kind of the gelatin is kind of compacted in. You can actually see the connective tissue doesn't kind of melt out, and you don't get those like stringy textures that you get uh, in kind of a, a, a slow cooked braise, right? And so the problem with that is is that that stuff then doesn't render out and moisten what would otherwise be over cooked non-connected tissue muscles in the same sort of area. Does that make sense? So Mm -hmm. it it can be problematic when doing these things, especially if you're going in the range of, let's say, once you go over about 57, right, or 57, once you're into 60, certain of the muscles are going to start tasting Uh, like relatively toothy, right, until they go mushy because the proteins of them have been overcooked and then you're not rendering out a lot of the gelatin into into the rest of the meat as you would with a traditional thing. So you're caught in kind of like a strange in-between land. Right Now, in something that is like a a braised short rib where there's kind of connected tissue throughout, then when you you can cook at really almost any temperature you want, I don't really see much of a a reason to go over about 62 when you're doing uh, short ribs, but – uh, anything from like 55 for rare, which I don't really like, but people – it's kind of a thing people do, like all the way up to 62, what happens is the texture changes. And uh, uh, incidentally, the higher the temperature in that range, things get beefier and beefier tasting, right? So people tend to appreciate the beefiness of it more. Uh, and this is another thing you have to realize is that um, slow-cooked – Chuck like this is never going to have the intensely beefy flavor that a high-temperature braised one is because the high temperatures create some of that beefy flavor, right? But anything between about 62, 63 and traditional braising temperatures in the 80s, right, uh, I don't really have much use for them. You know what I mean? I don't think that they're providing the best of either of the two worlds. So I tend to stay either in the lower range – or higher. Now, if your feeling from tasting it was that certain muscles tasted chewy because they were overcooked, right, then lower the temperature down to like a 57, but some of your friends might not be happy. If you're feeling that the connective tissue hadn't fully rendered yet, then go longer. But you have to be able to distinguish between the two different kinds of things which can almost masquerade for each other at certain times. You see what I'm saying?
5: Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. So I'm, I've, I've got one going right now at home at 59. It'll be tonight. It'll be just try of 48 hours. I'll, I guess I'll see how that goes and try to distinguish the two and then, and then go from there, but I'll probably try the 57
4: and see how that goes. So in muscles that don't have a lot of connective tissue, what you should notice for what I consider to be like they what happens is, is that when you bite into it, the fibers will have started to break down and it, will taste somewhat mushy. Now, some people, it, this is my opinion, mushy. Some people actually love that, that, that texture. They love it because they think of it as tender. To me, in my mind, there's a difference between tenderness, which is the, there is a lack of, or it, the connective tissue has been broken down, and the actual, what the fibers are like, Are they mushy or not? And so they separate between those two kinds of concepts. And then once you separate between those two kinds of concepts, you can troubleshoot, like, which way you want to go. Do I want to drop the temperature or do I want to increase the time? See what I'm saying?
5: Mm.
4: Yeah. But uh, shoot me something on cooking issues on Twitter. Let Let me know how it turned out after it comes out tonight.
5: It will do. Thank you. Cool.
1: And you actually have one other one on the line as well. All right, caller, you're on the air.
6: Yeah. Hi. This is uh, Patrick Collins from Brooklyn. How are you guys doing? How you doing? So I've got a question about steaming. But first, I have a, just a brief
4: comment on your uh, you atomic blast steaming. conversation from but, a couple weeks back. I you said steaming, correct? Yeah. Okay. Steaming, Nastasia. Jeez, Louise. All right. All right. What was your comment?
6: <laughs> is that apparently um, a lot of the blast calculations that the that the uh, military released. Take, do not take into effect the damage from incineration of buildings by the initial uh, uh, radiation, whatever the uh, the flash, whatever the beginning things call. called. Yeah. So that the effects are vastly understated in all the yield calculations out there. So basically, it'd be a, a lot worse than you think. Immediately, well, immediately
4: well everywhere. Co- conversely, it could be a lot. Uh, let me. Well, I'll, I'll give you this. Right. So. Most of the like standard highly flammable substance tests were like the the live you know what what we did in in Japan right, and and it's true that a lot of the the blast tests that were done in the U.S. were done on military they did uh, like some house based stuff right, but they also did military institution and concrete structures, and I don't know exactly which one of those things they relied on the most, right? But it is true, and I've read that things like fires are undercalculated by their blast and the damage that's involved. But another thing that they did not test on was the effect of giant urban metropolises that are so dense. If you look at all of their calculations, none of them were done in like, massive modern urban environments, which is kind of weird because they existed at the time. You know what I mean? But I guess, you know, they weren't going to build, like, four city blocks with skyscrapers on it and then, you know, attempt an air blast and a ground blast, uh, you know, next to it. It It's just impracticable. So, you know, I always thought that, like, it could be worse in some ways, like you say, but in other ways it could be better because no one's expecting you to be in the shadow of the Empire State Building.
6: You know what I mean? <laughs> well, so hopefully we don't get to the real real world test. Yeah, at all. yeah. But just throwing throwing that out there. Yeah. Um, so, so my steaming question is that I purchased a now a now defunct Cuisinart countertop. It's like a steam toaster oven. It's basically like a combi. I think a consumer combi. Yeah, I owned one oven
4: Yeah, I, I a, used to own one. Toast.
6: Yeah. So I am curious about on a steam alone setting, since the temp goes from I think one twenty to two ten of fooling around with with steaming mostly mostly animal protein if there's any any guidance on on you know low temperature steaming or even where to start or use is is our temps and times for student need relevant i have my only real experience is using bamboo steamer baskets and i'm not even sure what temperature that's steaming in in the basket when you have it above, above a bubble wok so i was just Looking for some general guidance, and it seems to be that there's very little written about this, as far as I can tell.
4: About, like, steaming in comp—well, it, it, in comp—okay, okay. So, when you're above a walk in a steamer basket, you're pretty much doing, uh, you know, 212. You're doing steam, Right. The main issues when you're using steamer baskets that I think people don't think about a lot is that uh, in, you know, unless you're being extremely – if you're extremely vigorous, you're getting massive amounts of condensation, which can be problematic, although steamer baskets are pretty good at handling that. But if you're using multiple steamer baskets, you're not necessarily getting the same heat output into the top basket as you are on the bottom basket, and so that kind of needs to be – calculated for. And again, you need to make sure that you don't go so ballistic with your steam that everything gets like steam logged from like condensation coming, hitting it from the top. You know what I mean? Uh, And that stuff's all high temperature steaming, but kind of what's cool about the combi oven and what is cool, you know, theoretically about the Cuisinart uh, unit, uh, and my friend John Daragon has one and he loves it, is the idea of Uh, lower temperature steam. Now, when you're creating the steam, it's being created at the high temperature, right? But it's being injected into the oven in such a way that you're not raising the oven temperature all the way up to the temperature of steam, right? And so the reason to do that in a low temperature thing is that one of the reasons why ovens are so terrible at doing low temperature cooking is that there's massive amounts of evaporation off of your product as it's cooking. So you can never really regulate the temperature. Once something becomes 100% humidity inside of the box, and this is the theory of the CVAP oven, where there's a Bain-Marie in it, and you're heating the Bain-Marie, up until the water is the same temperature that you want the oven to be is that once you're in a 100% humidity environment, even if it's not quote-unquote steam, right, then you're getting actual temperature on the surface of the meat because you've gotten rid of evaporative cooling and you've also increased the heat transfer rate of the medium by saturating mm-hmm. it with moisture, right? So you got this double thing where you can be more accurate, you're not having a uh, evaporation off of your, off your product and, you know, all this, but you don't have to put it in a bag. And that's the theory of like a CVAP oven or of low temperature combi is that I'm still getting decent... Heat transfer, not as much as you would in a bag, necessarily, and I'm getting decent accuracy because I've mitigated the effects of evaporative cooling, and that's what you're looking to do now. Whether or not the Cuisinart is able to do that, I have never run any tests, but it may be. Now, here's my problem. So, and the the bigger a piece of meat is, the less accurate it needs to be. Now, I've measured my Breville toaster oven on uh, temperature accuracy over time and also power output over time. I don't remember off the top of my head what the answers were, but I've measured it, like, with equipment. Uh, I have not measured uh, the um, the Cuisinart. But, you know, people who, like, back when Chris Young was doing uh, Modernist Cuisine with, uh, you know, Mirvold and Grant and uh, Maxime, you know, they were measuring combi ovens, and they noticed that there was, a, like, a lot of uh, porpoising up and down of the temperature, that it averaged the right temperature and that the average was good, but that it went up and down by deg- you know several degrees over the course of a couple of minutes. And so they use that as a knock against the, these ovens. And my point was always, well, it depends on how long the cycle is because as long as your average is 100%, you're only, uh, uh, accurate, you're only ever over or under cooking, right? The amount of meat that is affected During the time at which it goes excursed above uh, the excursion of temperature is above your set point. Does that make sense? So the question is hypothetically, if 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 at the end
6: too you were doing a high temperature finish, that same meat affected by that could it could be the same zone of the meat that's going to get the high temperature finish at the end in any way right? bingo
4: so it doesn't really matter whether you overcook the outer layer of the meat now on a thinner product where the, the temperature excursion is enough to, to like cause an effect all the way through the meat well then you're hosed Right, so it it all depends on how good the average is, and then how thick your piece of meat is that you whether you can withstand, uh, whether 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 you're gonna overcook with your finish the outside anyway, and and it and it doesn't matter. So this is just something that has to be tested. I haven't tested it with that oven. Now I will say this: my problem with that oven was twofold. One, the freaking rack that they give you is garbage. It's so garbage. The cooking rack is such. A POS. Oh my god, I hate it. The the wire they make it out of is so thin that it like cuts into things and then the wires themselves are so far separate from each other that like, you know, unless your bread is stiff as hell before it goes in. It flops down around the thing or like heaven forbid you try to reheat a freaking pancake. Steam is great for like reheating. Let's say you make pancakes and you ha- you make extra ones, right? What are you supposed to do with those? You're supposed to freeze them and then you can reheat them later, right? Or, you know, if you're going to throw them away. But the best way to reheat something like that is with steam because you're not drying it out as you're reheating it and it meant to be cooked to a high temperature anyway. So, a little bit of a steam hit with then with a little bit of toasting effect to do it out. Great. But the problem is is that those things curl around the freaking edges of that stupid grate that they give you. The grate is the worst piece of great technology I've ever used in my whole life. I hate there's nothing, it. There's
6: nothing in between this and a commercial TV app
4: at this
1: point, right? Uh, no. Dave, Dave from chat chimed in to say that you should know that Anova is producing a consumer combi oven. It says it will be out in 2020.
4: Oh, nice. Wow. Now, the other problem I have with the Cuisinart... Is that particular cuisinart? Is that uh, I don't like the control system at all. Like I wish they would just give you like a, a different way to, to control it. There's a the dial spinning and the different things that they have. It is I find it, I find the control oh, yeah, scheme that part, unpleasant. That
6: part not fun. So 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 two 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 quick things to wrap that up. Then is that so for like a traditional like uh like uh city ham time and text time temperature and time. What would you suggest? starting starting with on that because i have seen so many different suggestions i'm curious what you think of, of where you would at least start on you know just depends, about the size of pork that can fit in
4: that that thing well remember a city ham's already cooked right no, so no
6: the, what to cure to cure to cure and then do the first cook
4: oh oh okay uh yeah, I mean, like, it's, like it depends on, on what you like. I've, I don't know, actually, what temperature I used to know, what temperature they take them up to, but I would probably end up going somewhere in, for a traditional kind of texture on uh, City Ham, somewhere, like, north of 60 and south of 65, probably, like, in that range, uh, just to get that same kind of texture. Anything over, you're going to be killing it. Anything under 60... And you're gonna not necessarily have the texture that people associate with it. You know what I mean? It, it's
6: gonna be too soft.
4: Well, p- people don't want rareish ham. You know what I mean? Unless it's like country ham, like I eat raw. You know what I mean? Ain't nobody eating a city ham raw. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and they're they're obviously they you know people love a rosy rare uh, pork chop, but uh, here's what they I don't think they like. People, I think. Some people hate a rosy rare pork chop, by the way, but you know they be become more in fashion, you know, when I was a kid, when you ordered a pork chop, A, they were thin and B, you cooked the ever loving snot out of those things until they were like pieces of shoe leather because that's what everyone was told to do. And no one wanted anything other than like a shoe leather pork chop. And I grew up in the exact worst time for pork chops because this renaissance of like the not as cooked pork chop or the the, like the rosy in the middle pork chop uh, had not yet happened yet. But they had yeah, bred all of the fat out of pigs by the time that I was kind of a kid. And so the thin pork chop of the 80s was also dry, which is a nightmare. You grew up with dry pork chops yes. Nastasia? Yeah. The pork chop of the 80s was a dry, like a dry, sad pork chop, right? The pork it chop of our grandparents' like era was or greasy. Anyway.
6: Put a sponge on the counter what? and then forget about it. It sort of had that texture entirely. Yeah. Um, I just and then, then, then to, to completely wrap it up. I'm just curious with like duck or poultry like that that help you. you cut, it helps to have some sort of initial cooking before the roast with uh, at least with the, the with the fat and the skin. Is the steam? Do you need a dehydration step after that initial cook to dry it out, or can you go straight from a, a steam into the oven? Or is there really a good model for like a duck or two? Black roast uh, uh, people situation. love
4: people love cooking that stuff in combis i don't have that they love it they love it i don't have that much experience i you know typically any dehy you do you do before your roast step and then your injection would be done your steam injection would be done uh at the outset to kind of like jump start because uh, it's not actually making the surface moist it's just increasing your heat transfer you see what I'm saying? And and stopping a certain uh amount of evaporation off and, and and just jacking your heat transfer up. So I would say you probably continue doing it the traditional way and then with a steam injection. But I personally don't have like when I used combis, I you know, most of my combi work was kind of special effect combi work. Like I was never like on a line just like throwing you know a bunch of chickens or a bunch of ducks into a combi and and letting her rip so i don't i don't personally have that much experience with it but i know people love cooking duck in a combi
6: okay cool well i'll let let you know how it goes look forward to the better model than this one it
4: works well. yeah cool yeah i'll be looking out for okay, it as thanks. well um
1: and we actually have enough yet another caller okay,
4: awesome. all right caller you're on the air what's up Hey, I got an easy question for you guys.
7: <clears throat>
3: um, so I just started cooking like three or four months ago, and I started listening to you guys' uh, podcast. And I've been making fresh noodles, which is way better than any noodles that I've ever tasted. But the problem I'm having is they keep clumping up together. Yeah. Um, how do I like, – sometimes it's clumping up, sometimes it's not, and I'm not sure what I'm doing wrong to cause it to clump up.
4: So you're, you're, you're doing like Italian-style noodles?
3: Yeah, just uh, Italian-style noodles, spaghetti noodles, angel hair, stuff like that.
4: And you have an, an Atlas-style pasta roller? Yep, exactly. Okay. So this is a common problem. What are you using to mix the uh, – to mix the, uh, the pasta?
3: um a fork.
4: <laughs> oh, so you are not using like a kitchen aid or anything like that?
3: No, I don't have I don't have anything like that.
4: Okay. So your problem is one of hydration, right? So pasta dough is like Italian pasta. Are you doing egg or not egg? Egg. So, uh pasta dough is one of those things where you know, it's almost like you want, for, you almost want it to be such low hydration that you're like, this is never going to be a dough. Do you know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying, Stas? Yeah. So it's like she's just she's mouthing words but not speaking them. <laughs>
2: just don't Any- like fresh pasta. Okay. But,
4: well, but, fresh pasta is different from dry pasta. They're I different have, products. I don't like it. You don't like it at all. At all. Ravioli, yes. Cavatelli. No. You don't like cavatelli. Mm-hmm. Cavatelli, you don't like it. Not really a fresh pasta, but gnocchi you don't like. Mmm.
2: Potato gnocchi, yes. Where it's purely made out of potatoes. There's no such thing as pure. Yes, With no flour in it. Like a little bit, but not the majority. The majority is potato. Who makes, who makes, like... Real Italians. Uh, real ta- You're what real Italian. Did you ever live in Italy by yourself? No. Why are you questioning me? Because what you're saying all Italian. real Italian... You when you talk about... <laughs> you know
4: hey fun. family show first of all and you made it with your family you were living with yes and how much flour did they use
2: i don't remember but okay
4: not a lot well i'm not saying it should be all flour but like you're saying like it's like all no one makes it with all potatoes potato. and a teaspoon
2: of flour it's mostly potato anyway it doesn't matter well, what doesn't matter you don't believe me go on with this question
4: i just want a recipe okay otherwise it's mashed potatoes and egg Needs some flour. Yeah. Geez, Louise. And I don't appreciate the hatred of fresh pasta. But I understand you're, 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 in the al dente pasta business, where you like you want it dried. You need that hard center. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you're making a pasta, whether you're making it, whether you're going to dry it or not later, like you need to have a very low hydration dough. And so the problem you're having is there's just too much water in the dough, and that's why it's clumping together. So there's a couple things you can do to rectify that. You can either try to get like a, a harder like a heavier mixing environment to like mix it so that you can mix a, a lower hydration dough. It might also be the flour that you're using. but another thing you could do is do what I used to do, which is cheat, and the way that you cheat, okay is is that you make the dough as kind of stiff as you can, and then uh you know how you so when you're rolling it through the rollers you you know you, you take the piece that you're going to do, you roll it through like. Once, twice, three, and then it starts to kind of look like dough before you start rolling it and then reducing the size of it. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Okay. So uh, flour it in between the rolls. And then as you're rolling it, the flour will get – get – get – kind of into it and will stiffen it somewhat. So especially, like, I don't think anyone ever uses number seven on those rollers. It's like, you all, or whatever it is, the highest number, is seven, whatever. I only ever really go to the second to highest one. The other one's, like, so thin, it's crazy, right? But yeah. the, the thinner you go, the less apt it is to clump. And if you're dusting it with flour in between, another thing you can do is uh, – pause. So like once you get it down to your final, uh, place, you can put a light dusting of flour on it, let it sit, uh, and let it air out a little bit. And then when you cut it, it won't clump nearly as much. Now, one of the problems is, is that most of the rollers on the pasta things, they, um, the, the two cutting like thingamajigs kind of, don't really intersect that much. They barely touch. And so sometimes if you have very thin or very dry doughs, they tend not to like even necessarily get cut, but that's a machine to machine because the tolerances on the machines aren't that high, if, if that makes sense to you. So I don't know whether if your machine's always cutting like a dream, realize also with a drier dough, you're going to have to like feed in a little harder to get it to grip, but that's actually good because it's going to clump less as it comes out. And then, like lay them out in in strips or over you know i remember i used to jam wooden spoons into things and then like drape the stuff over the wooden spoon and and get them to go in but it's it's mainly just a hydration problem and a little bit of cheating you know uh, a little bit of cheating with flour dusting in between your roller steps i think is going to help you out tremendously yeah super helpful appreciate that
1: this episode is brought to you by fair kitchens The food service industry faces a challenge. More people are eating out, yet restaurants are losing talent. Why is this? Research by Fair Kitchens reveals a serious well-being issue within professional kitchens. 74% of chefs are sleep-deprived to the point of exhaustion. 63% of chefs feel depressed. And more than half feel pushed to the breaking point. This can't be ignored. Fair Kitchens is a movement based on the belief that a positive kitchen culture makes for a healthier business. By taking the pledge to be a Fair Kitchen, they'll provide you with free information, tools, and resources to help you take action towards making your restaurant more stable, productive, and happy, which positively affects the guest experience. It's time to act now. Learn about the Fair Kitchens code and join the movement at fairkitchens.com.
4: Uh, Yuri writes in about Methocel. Hi, I hope this is still the correct email address for questions uh, for cooking issues. If so, dear Dave, Nastasia, esteemed guest of the podcast, no guests today, no guests. Nope. No. Nastasia shopping for shoes. Are I'm you looking, looking for gnocchi recipes, or are you shopping yeah. for
2: shoes?
4: Gnocchi recipes. All right, cool. Uh, I'm looking for resources slash guidance on how. To, do you believe in that Fade in the Spoon book? I don't really like it. The book that apparently every Italian house has a copy of that was translated into English like 15 years ago, and it's just got the spoon on the front of it. Do you know the book I'm talking about? It's like The Joy of Cooking for Italy. It's the most popular cookbook in Italy. You know what I'm talking about? No. It's translated into English like, oh, whatever. Look up their recipe see what they do because that's the, like you're looking for the Joy of Cooking equivalent of gnocchi. Um, Oh, you know what I never talked about? The carrots. That's what I was getting to this whole time with the sushi. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I bought a sheeting, a vegetable sheeting attachment and I put on Instagram a picture of me doing these carrot sheets. And the way you're supposed to do it is take like a, a sharp knife and hold it still and then rotate the carrot. Helps if you, I don't because I never have this patience, but it helps if you soak it a little bit in salt water to kind of dehydrate a little bit. So it's a little softer, but carrot, you just rotate it through carrot, cucumber, uh, daikon, all that, and you get a, a long sheet, then you hack that sheet into smaller sheets, you stack the sheets up, and then you slice it into the little strips that you put inside the sushi. But I happen to own a KitchenAid sheeter that I got on super sale on eBay that I bought so that I can, I talked about it on the air before, so I could do like potato lasagna where it's like just like a, like, like almost like a, like a mashup between like a lasagna and a gratin with these, like, sheets of potatoes. And I was like, you know what? Crap, on. I'm going to use it. And so I made these, like, veg sheets with the uh, stuff for this sushi party, and people accused me of going vajetti. People accused me of being a, a vajetti man. That's,
1: that's rude of them.
4: My, my... I have nothing against vegetis, by the way. I, I don't. Like, I, I... Or as they call spiralizers. I feel like, you know... Did, did we come off as being negative
2: against the Vegetti? Yeah, and Claire's yes. never coming on the show again.
4: Well, I mean, that's because she thought she was coming on to be backed up by you, and who was who else was on the show that day? Rebecca. And Rebecca. And in fact, you guys ganged up on her just as hard as I would have. So she said she's never going to come back on. Mm-hmm. People, if you hire Claire to be your life coach, which Nastasia will give you her information again. Uh, Say that the only way to be a true life coach is to come on Cooking Issues and specifically ask a question that you know is going to turn me into like a a raving lunatic. Right, Stas? Yes. Yeah. Uh, Okay. This is from Yuri. I'm looking for resources/slash guidance on how to use Methocell for applications other than foaming/slash meringues, which are well documented. Before we get into this, Methocell is a hydro- hydrocolloids are kind of the new age thickeners that you know I've been teaching about since forever. Uh, you know, Wiley Dufresne, my brother-in-law, was the one who started me using me, uh, you know, getting me to use a, a lot of them. But it's one of those uh, kind of new, new, new era thickeners. It's um, Methocell is what people think it's short for is methocellulose, right? Methacell is a brand name from Dow Chemical that of both methocellulose and hydroxypropyl methylcellulose. So it's not a unified thing, methocell. Like when you say methocell, you have to say exactly what you are uh, looking to do. Now, the the thing that I'm going to tell you basically about methocell before I go to the question uh, so that you understand the question better. But methacell is derived from cellulose, so you pulp up, you know, like plant fibers and, uh, you know, cellulose. And then uh, you treat it in a very caustic solution to convert it into this thing, either methacellulose or hydroxypropyl methylcellulose. And then there's a wide range of variations kind of between them. Then you hack them up into little particles, and then there you have your powder. Now, the interesting thing about them, they have a couple of interesting... Uh, characteristics but the most interesting thing is is that they tend to gel when they are hot so almost every thickener if it's going to form a gel forms a gel as it's cooling right but methocell does the opposite methocell if it's in a water solution as you heat it it turns to a gel right because what happens as you heat it it drops out of solution and forms a gel Now, there are 8 billion types – not 8 billion. There are like 19 types of methylcellulose. You need to ask exactly which ones you're looking for. So the main cool things that it does is as you heat it, it forms a a gel. It can be harder. It can be softer. And it happens at at, at different temperatures, and I'll I'll go into that in a second. But because of that, uh, it also has uh, foaming ability, which it's used for um, and can be used in emulsification systems. Uh, It's also not – charged, right, in the way that like uh, egg proteins are charged. And so it doesn't get affected by salt that much. Something that's not very well documented is it can be affected by milk, all right? So this is what methyl cell is. Now it's going into Yuri's question. Um... I'm looking for an understanding of how to use Methicel for stock clarification and for frying to avoid fat absorption. The recipes I find online are somewhat confusing. For instance, there's a donut recipe from Modernist Pantry uh, where it's called Slam Dunk Donuts, if you want to search for it. it, uses Methicel E4M, and there's a Chef Steps Fish and Chips recipe that uses Methicel. F, like Frank, 50. How would I adapt either of these for a breaded cutlet, for example? Uh, well, if you, well, okay. Which methicel should I use? What are the pros and cons of each one? And at what percentages? If I wanted to use methicel in my own donut recipe, uh, would I calculate the percentage from the weight of the flour or the finished dough or the liquid component? And then another example is Chef Steps did a consomme uh, where they used methicel. They used F50, I think, for clarification. How would I scale that up, down, et cetera? Okay, look. Here's the thing. Um... What, met, what they're doing with their uh, – another caveat from methicel is methicel is one of the very few hydrocolloids that is not natural, i.e. it is not a naturally occurring substance. It is derived from a naturally occurring substance but is chemically modified into something that is not naturally occurring and some people have a problem with that. I don't. Um, so, w- OK. What's happening in the donut recipe is – first of all, when you're looking at the different series, the A series – and the SGA, the SGA series is the hardest gelling. So if you're looking for special effect gels, like the old heat-setting noodles where people will give you, like, goop in a bottle, you squeeze the goop into soup and it turns into a noodle, they're using SG&A. That's straight methylcellulose, not hydroxypropyl methylcellulose. It gels at the lowest temperature, like sometimes in just plain hot water, like, you know, like. Like mildly hot water, like water you can keep your hand in, and it gels harder and it stays gelled uh, longer, right? That's what the kind of stuff people were experimenting with their hot ice creams, et cetera, et cetera, right? Th- those are those series. Uh, anytime you have a methacel, whether it's the E series, the F series, the A series, or the SG series, there's a number afterwards. So F50. That number 50 is how thick it is, how thick the the viscosity of a solution of that is so 50 is relatively low because if you if you get one that's like has an m in it like uh e4m the 4m means 4000 it's roman numerals m 4000 so that is 4,000, uh, I believe it's in centipoise at a 2% solution, that, uh, whereas uh, F50 is only 50. So it's like orders of magnitude thicker. So when you're looking at any methyl cell one, the uh, like the like the A series and the SG series form a stiffer gel and they form at a lower temperature. The other ones form a less firm gel and they form at a higher temperature. And the number afterwards is the viscosity. Fifty is low. Things like four M is are very high. Okay, uh, so. Um, on the donut recipe, what's happening is is they're mixing some of that uh, E4M in. That's gonna in- I think they use E4M. That's gonna increase the viscosity of the batter, which means that it's not gonna bleed out as much. It's gonna literally the viscosity of the batter will be higher once it's hydrated. The way they do it is they mix it dry and then they mix it in. Another interesting thing about methylcell is if you want to make sure that it's hydrated, you have you should put it into hot water, stir it, and then chill the water and let it go into solution. But we can get into this later. We you know some point we. Should Maybe go through hydrocolloids and do hydrocolloid of the week and why you use it and why you don't. But uh, in that recipe, what's happening is is that to the extent that it hydrates in the dough, it's capturing a lot of water, making it thick because of the high viscosity of it once it's hydrated. And two, um, as it's heated, it's forming a barrier to prevent oil absorption. That's what it's there for. In the Chef Step's recipe, they're using F50 because they want a relatively thin viscosity of stuff because they're using it as a pre-dip. They're making an F50 mix and they're pre-dipping into that if you believe in wet dip. I'm not a wet dip. I'm, I'm like chicken or whatnot into dry, into wet, into dry. They're doing wet, dry, wet. Which is kind of not what I do but fine it's different it's like a more of a batter thing uh, I me mean, pies and thighs does it that way and, and Roberta's used to do it that way when they had a pies and thighs person here uh, wet the wet the start from wet Their wet dip is a methacel mix. Then when you put it into dry, it keeps that stuff there, but that's putting a grease barrier and also an anti-blast-off barrier. So one of the things that methacel is good at is people used to put methacel into things like barbecue sauce. You paint the barbecue sauce on your chicken. Not that I do that, I don't particularly like doing that, but you paint the barbecue sauce on the chicken. And then when you put it on the grill, as it heats, instead of becoming more liquid and running off, it turns to a gel and sits there and doesn't run off. And that I think is mainly what they're doing in this recipe on chef steps is not because it's not in the final batter. It's just in the, it's just in the pre dip. I think they're mainly using it as a glue so that as it heats up, the batter tends to stick to the fish better and not pop off. I think that's what they're doing in that. So it's using it for a slightly different, um, a slightly different uh, thingamajig. And the same thing with their consomme recipe. What they're doing is, is they're mixing the F50 in with chicken, right? The chicken provides the charge. It's actually doing the adhering, stuff adhering to the to, – what they do is they grind up fresh chicken and methicill and cloudy stock. They bring it up to, uh, a simmer, they let it simmer and it clarifies like a stock without egg white. The reason is that egg white strips a lot of flavor, which is dang true. I've done the test. It does. Right. And what they're saying is, is that the F50 forms a gel, that gel traps the ground up chicken. And then the ground up chicken is what's doing. The lean chicken is what's doing the adhering of the stuff. And so, um, You know, I would scale it up exactly as they're doing. Bear in mind that they're using 200 grams of chicken to 500 grams of stock, which is an extremely expensive way to make stock, which is why you're only doing it for like a high-end consomme. I read some of the reviews on the website of their um, recipe, and people do this all the time. Someone's like, it doesn't work. Of course, I didn't have methicillin. I substituted xanthan gum instead. (laughs) People! They have very different functionalities. You can't substitute xanthan gum for methacell. This is why I think a lot of people reach for hydrocolloids without an understanding of why they're using a particular hydrocolloid in, uh, in a particular application. Because the idea that you would substitute xanthan gum for methacell is patently absurd. And of course, it's not going to work that way. It's people also review books this way. You ever notice, Nastasia? People review books, and they're like, "I, I don't like any of the recipes in the book. Of course, I didn't follow any of them. Buy and like them. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Hate that. Uh, Nastasia might find this interesting. You know what methacel is used for that you might actually enjoy?
2: Right.
4: It's the slime in Ghostbusters, mm. and it's also used to make fa- the fake oil in their uh, There Will Be Blood. Mm-hmm. You, know, you no, see I haven't, that movie? I haven't seen that movie. I thought you loved Daniel Day Lewis. I thought
2: don't you do?
4: You love Dan. You don't love Daniel Day Lewis? No, nope. You do. You talk to him about me. You talk to me about him all the time. Get off on it. Oh, you
1: crazy person! (laughs) She's doing it for you. She knows you love Daniel Day Lewis.
4: Oh, that's so nice. Another thing people use it for commercially is in pie filling. Because you ever had a pie? You ever? You don't like baking pie, right, Sus? No. Is there anything you like to bake?
2: No. Mike is here
4: putting your shoulder into the mic. There's nothing you like to bake?
2: No, I don't like baking.
4: What do you like to cook most?
2: Uh, Pasta.
4: But, like, what kind of pasta? Like sauces and pastas. All right. What about, like, do you like cooking risotto? No. So the only thing you like to cook is pasta?
2: I will cook, but I'm not, I've not been cooking lately.
4: I don't think lately, but, like, what is it, like, so pasta is your go-to. Why? Because it's quick or because you actually enjoy doing it? I enjoy it. Yeah. Pasta is good for quick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nastassia Lopez hates, hates fresh pasta. Anyway, if you put it into a pie filling, people put it there so it doesn't boil out. So, Matt, you ever bake pies? I have baked,
1: I think, one pie. Oh, you people.
4: All right. Uh, this is from Brandon. Do you have any recommendations for a spice grinder that will not crap out on me after 10 uses? I've purchased the one recommended by a couple of sources I typically trust, Serious Eats and America's Test Kitchen. However, it is junk. 100% wretched junk. As someone who actually cares about the taste of my food, I buy spices as fresh as possible and whole and then toast them and grind them myself. I burn through numerous blade coffee grinders now and resort to either mortar, pestle, or my Vitamix if there's enough volume so that the blades work. What do professional kitchens use to grind tough things like cinnamon? Any recommendations for home use? Thanks. Uh, okay. It is a problem, actually, and people do use – and you referenced like a little Krups coffee grinder, spice grinder thing. The wearing – that I have a wearing blade grinder, and it's it's pretty good. Uh, it has, like, individual, like, cups that click in and out of it and a thing that fits over it. It's kind of expe- – but any blade grinder, I kind of – they're kind of a nightmare because they, they can't produce a good – you know, like, for instance, if you're doing pepper in a blade grinder, right – it's always going to leave, like, a bunch of whole peppercorns. And then when you're using it, if those whole peppercorns make it onto your product, that's a knife. How much do you hate when, like, you're cooking something and someone leaves whole peppercorns in, they're not cracked at all, and then you mm-hmm. bite into it, and you're like, what the hell is that? You hate that? It's
2: crappy.
4: It's crappy, right? So it's hard. So then you end up, like, kind of half grinding it because you don't want to turn everything to fine particles. You want cracked. But then you're like, what the hell am I going to do? So then you have to put it through a freaking, like a, like, a, a sieve you know what I mean, to get the big big ones out, it's a nightmare. And the, the problem is that blade grinders are never going to be good at getting a good, consistent particle size. Mortar and pestle, good at that, pain in the butt, right? Uh, so, like, wh- what are you supposed to do? So, first of all, you can get a higher-end uh, blade grinder, like a wearing and stuff like this, but there is very, there are very few things that are good at taking whole things and making them into a fine or a a uniform particle size over a wide range of things. So what I typically do, I use my... Uh, coffee grinder, like the Hario style one, but I use the thin one. I've put, I put it on my on my what's it called Twitter uh, a couple of times. The thing I can find it again. But then for something like cinnamon, you can pre smash it or crack it into pieces because the problem with cinnamon is it's hard to feed into the burrs of that kind of coffee grinder. The other things that a coffee grinder, like a like a burr style coffee grinder, can't do very well is um, things like cardamom, what happens is, is unless you take the, the papery stuff off, the paper can align with the burrs and then big chunks of fiber and paper come out through the burrs because they can just make it the thin way and they make it out. And there's really nothing much you can do about that. But uh, for the vast majority of things, some things, like I say, cinnamon, you need to crack it up first. Then once it's cracked up, you can put it through a burr grinder. Uh, same with uh, star anise and things like that. But... But cinnamon is you've chosen one of the tougher ones. If you don't want a lot, I just microplane it if you only want small amounts. But that can be a pain in the butt for kind of large amounts. Because remember, microplanes are essentially wood rasps. Now, my partner Don at the bar says he read somewhere that the actual, like, pieces of wood that are created by microplaning may be injurious to some people. But I haven't read the data, so I don't know. But I'm just letting you know. Um, David Gabois wrote in. Uh, per my question to Dave on Twitter, did you guys ever estimate the heat intensity of the All when used with the Bernzomatic torch? Well, there's two, but we're going to talk about the TS-8000. I'm a Sears All owner, and it would be useful to know about, uh, what the delivered watts per square centimeter is. This would help me evaluate whether I should even bother with other searing mechanisms, electric broilers on certain high-end wall ovens, or outdoor propane broilers like the Auto Wild. Cheers and thanks in advance, David Gabois. Um... You do, in fact, have... Nastasia hasn't changed her email on this since 2013 because then she would just have to train people to use a different email address, Mm -hmm. which would be useless to you, right? Mm -hmm. Useless.
1: What is that email address?
2: It's my last name dot my first name at Gmail. Excellent. That that would be... My my private email.
1: And Dave confirms that you got his last name pronounced correctly, and he was amazed.
4: Oh, well, you know. Anyway, uh, so here's the thing. First of all... Power is, it's always a lie. Now, I'm going to give you numbers that make us sound really good from a marketing standpoint. So I took my uh, Sears All, I measured it. It's 67.75 uh, millimeters across the screen. That is uh, 36 square centimeters, which is 5.58 or 5.59 uh, square inches. The burns TS-8000, when running on propane, which is all you should run it on, uh, puts out 14,282 BTUs per hour. So BTUs per hour is a measure of power. BTUs is a measure of, uh, the energy, actual heat energy. Watts is a measure of power, uh, and watt hours is a measure of the actual amount of energy that you've put in. So, uh, so BTUs per hour can convert to watts. So, fourteen thousand two hundred eighty-two BTUs per hour is uh, equivalent to four thousand one hundred eighty-five watts. Uh, and so, what you have is in centimeters, you have one hundred sixteen watts per square centimeter, or seven hundred forty-nine watts per square inch, and three hundred ninety-six uh, BTUs. Uh, per hour per square centimeter and 2555BTUs uh, per hour per square inch which is an astronomically high number but it's also a lie because a lot of that heat energy isn't being turned to radiation being put onto your onto your food right so and everyone who rates uh, these things it, like they lie and just say you know it's it's impossible to figure out, the actual radiant power, Well, what you, what you would need to do is get a small – and we could do this actually. I guess get a small unit and put it against it for a certain amount of time and then calculate how much energy has gone into using a, a FLIR camera or something like this. But – just for, for giggles. The problem with it is, is it's quite small, so then you have to average it over the entire area kind of where you're cooking. Maybe Nastasia and I someday will, you know, we have a, we have other projects that are taking up all of our time, but maybe someday if there's interest, we'll make, like my dream is to make a Searsol V8 that is like, an absurd number of BTUs over a much larger thing. So the size of a normal salamander burner, but the intensity of a Searzall uh, just to kind of, with the instant on capability. But, you know, that's probably what, Stas, if we ever do it, it's probably still a couple years out. Mm-hmm. Uh, guess who wrote in uh, about grilling? Joey. Joey Lopez! This How's it be the last question, it's 115. Well, you want me to do the nitro one real quick? Do you want me to save the nitro one for next time?
1: You should save it if it's not pressing because there's one pressing one from the chat, which is the. Can, can I throw this in here? All right. Uh, it's probably pretty quick. Elvin was. He's in Tokyo right now. He's like a 10 minute walk away from the Kapabashi Kitchenware Street this time. Nice. He's got a near empty suitcase for this purpose. He's curious if anything. If there's anything in particular he should be on the lookout for.
4: Well, I mean, what do you like? I mean, Nastasi and I when we were there. We bought the ice shaver and then i carried it on my back back to the hotel right so i mean like the ice shavers are, are great there it's great for like you you need to go there with an idea for those of you that don't know it's like the bowery of tokyo but it's like so hardcore and you you at the entrance to the street is like a giant fake chef on the on the on that building remember that mm-hmm. giant fake chef and it has the goofy like the goofy like f- I, like squashed Italian-style French toque, right? Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, on top of the building, and that's where you know you're in the right neighborhood. A lot of what you can get there is available here, just it's, there's more of it there, and the price may be better. But things like ice shavers, although they're quite heavy, I mean, obviously good place to shop for uh, knives, but also like Japanese small wares that you might not be able to get here and like, um, you know, service implements that you might not, might not be able to get. Get
2: what you like.
4: Nastasia, that is good advice. Nastasia is giving me what the kind one question. Just get what you like. Just get what you like. Nastasia. All right. So I have a question on, uh, on uh, nitro heads for uh, bar taps, which I'll do next time in my discussion of, uh, of uh, cascading effects with uh, nitrogen. Uh, Nastasia's brother, Joey Lopez, and also all around nice guy. Where's he living now again? Portland. Back in Portland? Mm -hmm. What's he doing over there?
2: Bartending. Okay.
4: He has a question about grills. Not really grill season. He can wait a week, right? (laughs) Joey can wait a week on the grill. All right. So in the last three minutes, I'm going to do a classics in the field that you actually have a lot to say about, Nastasia. Three minutes. Okay. You ready? Yep. Okay. This week, classics in the field. I didn't feel it that time. I didn't feel my voice. Go. I didn't feel it in my voice. Okay. Go. All right. I was going to do a classics in the field. And then when I was rereading it, I realized that there were some issues with it and I didn't really feel like getting into the politics of the issues. So I chose not to do it. But instead I was (laughs) jumping from one frying pan into another. Uh, one of the books that came out in 1997, that was a big influence on me. And I think a big influence on an entire generation of, uh, cooks. So if you think about 19, 97, Cook's Illustrated, which is super important, you know, started by uh, Chris Kimball, came out in 1993. I have the original magazines, Cook's Illustrated. I can bring them in sometime, too, because that whole year is basically a classics in the field. Cook's Illustrated 1993 should be a classics in the field. I'll bring it in. I have them all a uh, member Nastasia. Oh yeah, and that's like right when I got out of college and that's right when I started reading that stuff but a, a scant four years later uh, a guy named Jeffrey Steingarten wrote a book called The Man Who Ate Everything which I always butcher and combine with the Oliver Sacks books like The Man Who Ate Everything with a Hat or The Man Who Mistook His Wife for Everything because I, some of my mind are kind of like I guess I was reading them at the same time anyway uh, Jeffrey Steingarten He's still around. Uh, what's one of the reasons I bring this up? N- Nastasia and I uh, kind of, you know, we became friends with him, so you know, we know him. So Nastasia has a lot of personal stories that she can tell about. And he came on the show once, mm-hmm. very early on in our in our in our tenure. But uh, Jeffrey was the food editor at Vogue magazine, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense that <laughs> Vogue would have a, a food magazine, but he would write a column for Vogue. Uh, and then he compiled them. So he'd been doing them for quite a while. He'd already kind of, you know, uh, he compiled them into his first book, which is The Man That Ate Everything. And when it came out in 97, no one had ever written kind of a, a, a book like this. So he would take an individual subject... He, he graduated he's a Harvard law graduate, and I believe also Harvard. Uh, and, you know he wrote for The Lampoon, so he decided to you know quit lawyering and then b- become a writer and he 's a funny guy, right he's a funny guy, acerbic and kind of problematic in, in, in some ways, very problematic, very acerbic, like to insult people, uh, have a lot of issues, but like kind of a very like gifted, talented guy. but what he would do is he would take any particular, and this influenced me very heavily, is that he would take any particular subject that he was interested in and then run it into the ground. And he was the first person, I think, so Cook's Illustrated in 93 was running recipes into the ground with their pursuit for the perfect X, the perfect Y, the perfect Z, which I think is crazy because there is no perfect X, Y, or Z. But that was kind of how they made uh, their, their bones, and they were very good at it, Cook's Illustrated. But the kind of other side of that same coin, the kind of so these two people, Cooks Illustrated and Jeffrey Steingarten, kind of started this whole deep dive into a subject. Like, I'm interested in mashed potatoes, so I'm going to fly to Idaho and meet with Orita on how potato flakes are going to be made, and then therefore, my, and that was in this book actually, and therefore, and then that recipe. Just to give you an idea, the, his uh, article on in here on. Uh, potato f- uh, uh, mashed potatoes and potato flakes ended up being a technique that was taken on by Jo Robuchon like years later, and then Jo uh, Joel Robuchon's res- recipe came back to the United States along with the kind of uh, with Wiley and all these other guys. So it's like it was an extremely kind of important book, and I think people don't necessarily read it anymore. I read some of the Amazon reviews, and if if this person, I bought this book at the recommendation of a friend. I like to read about chefs and food, but this book was way too scientific and way too preachy for my taste. I didn't finish it. If this sounds like you, don't read it. Uh, and then another person, dislike a lot of people, a lot of the negative reviews of the book kind of dislike the tone, but you kind of just have to get down with his tone uh, to get down with it. And He gave me, I think, the best advice uh, is... You shouldn't say anything about food unless you have eaten and cooked a lot of it. He is very much a believer in eating and experimenting, regardless of the issues he might have. You want to talk about Steingarten a little bit?
2: No, we don't have time. He's a okay. great guy.
4: Yeah, he's, he's acerbic. He definitely has an issue. His wife, by the way, is amazing. She's amazing a,
2: woman. Amazing,
4: yeah, uh, yeah. Carol Smith, amazing. Karen Smith, rather. Right. She's an amazing uh, tell her art what, historian. Tell her about her thing oh, And God. leave
2: it with that. Leave it with that. Well, you won't want to explain the other stuff? No. All right, we, we don't can talk
4: come. later if someone asks us questions in private. Come tell us in private and ask us. But she, look, she was a, a, is a scholar of Buddhist art, and she was the first, um, what's it called, curator for the uh, Rubin Museum here in New York, which is, you know, I, I think Tibetan only, or or just all kinds of art around that all region. all kinds of art. Anyway. Uh, so she had studied, uh, you know, B- Buddhist art and Asian art. She came up to me, and she said the things that I use all the time whenever whenever there's something wrong when something's happening she goes to me hey Dave no choice no problem <laughs> Cooking Issues Cooking Issues is powered by Simplecast Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network food radio supported by you for our freshest content subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage.
7: Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Sherry Bayer, the host of All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm thrilled to let you know about HOST, Summit Plus Social, a new conference for and about the hospitality industry, taking place Monday, January 27th, 2020, at the William Vale in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, New York City. Based on my all-in-the-industry show, HOST, which stands for Hospitality Operations, Services, and Technology, will bring behind-the-scenes talent in hospitality to the forefront in a live format, featuring guests from some of my most popular episodes, including Drew Porrent, Rita Jame, Crystal Mobileni, J.J. Johnson, and Jeff Gournier. Our event will include intimate panels, one-on-one interviews, industry news discussions, curated lunch conversations, and more. Plus, of course, we will have outstanding food and drink throughout the day, including an energizing closing reception. For more information and tickets, please go to allintheindustry.com. And also, please follow us at All Industry on Instagram and Twitter. I hope you will join us in celebrating our dynamic hospitality industry. Many thanks.